Father, we do thank you for this afternoon. We thank you, Father, for the beautiful fellowship that is so evident here that as sisters in Christ we can come together like this. And for someone like me, not part of this family uh, here at Narrenburn Camaray and the Japanese church, uh, thank you that it just feels like I'm with my sisters in Christ, which I am. Thank you for uh, the food and we thank you, Father, for the spiritual food and we pray now that as we sit under your word again, you would help us to um, focus, uh, to engage and uh, to understand. We pray that your spirit would be at work to enable us to do that. Help me to be faithful and clear too, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, before I start, I just want to mention, if you are doing um, a trip to Kurong, um, uh, just one, actually, I'll mention this book. This is by Tim Chester. You'll know um, the name Tim Chester, I think, from other books. Uh, this is a little commentary on Hosea. Uh, it's a very readable one, and um, I think you'll, you'll find it really helpful if you want to do more studies, which I'm assuming you all will after this afternoon. So uh, that one, it's, it's from the um, Focus on the Bible series. They're a really good series to have, and uh, Tim Chester's a really good writer. The other book I have, which you might find harder to find, it's called 12 Books to Change Your Life. It's actually these beautiful little bite-sized chapters on each minor prophet, like about four or five pages on each. Um, and now, it's, it's published by SNBC, so I'm not quite sure. I guess you could contact SNBC. I don't know if it's out of print now. Uh, anyway, they're just two books um, that uh, you might uh, want to keep your eyes out for. And, you know, if Kurong has this one, I'll be very impressed. But uh, I'm not sure that they will. But anyway. Um, and just in terms of holidays, I'm with Sienna too. I realise I said Hawaii and Honolulu. Um, but I love going to the UK. And in fact, um, Sienna, I don't know where Sienna is, but uh, you, will, you would love Ireland, Northern Ireland. Um, I went there uh, just before COVID hit, so around... Um, Actually, I went on the 31st of December. You know where the fires were raging in, in, uh, in the, the awful fires um, on the south coast, in, on the coast, uh, north coast as well. Anyway, I flew out on the 31st of December to go fly into Belfast. And you, do you know Leslie Walker? Yes. I stayed with Leslie uh, in her hometown of Bangor, as they say there. We say Bangor. Uh, they say Bangor. Leslie hates it when I do that because I don't do it very well. Anyway, I want to tell you about the time that I went at this particular time. I was um, going for a wedding and I was staying with Leslie and I was, Leslie was getting me into the British TV. And so there I was jet lagged on the couch in her lovely home and a show called Tipping Point came on. Now, I think it's on here now, tipping point. It's on in the afternoon. It's really, I really got into it when I was over there. Basically, the thing is, it's kind of part luck, part strategy, um, and part uh, general knowledge. If I went to the UK now, I'd put my name down for this show. I would love to be on it, because I you know, press the button and you answer questions and, and everything. There I was on the couch watching Tipping Point. Four contestants, they compete. Uh, answer questions, they put a disc through this machine, it puts discs over, you win quite a lot of money. That, then you get whittled down from four contestants, three contestants, two contestants, one contestant. The last contestant 
uh, they can win up to maybe two or three thousand pounds or more. I mean, that's a lot of money. We're talking, you know, what, uh, six, seven thousand dollars just for an afternoon's game show work. And the idea is that you win this money and then at the last minute, at the very last minute of the show, the guy called Ben, who's really quite good looking too, I wouldn't mind going on the show just to meet Ben, but anyway, Ben will say to the contestants, now, you can trade all that you've got, 3,000 pounds, to have three more discs go through, and if you get those three discs, you can push over this 10,000 pound disc and you can win 10,000 pounds. And as I'm watching this show on Leslie's couch, jet lagged, I would be amazed because he'd say, do you want to trade or do you want the money? And I'm thinking, they've got 3,000 pounds or more. They can take that and go with them. And then you hear some of them say, thanks, Ben, I think I'll take the trade. What? And they get three more discs, and if they don't fall in the right place, they get nothing. And there I was on the couch calling out, don't do it. You're an idiot. Because I would never do that. Or would I? When push comes to shove, would I risk it? Would I risk it? Because, I mean, 10,000 pounds, I mean, that's so much better than three or 4,000 pounds. I think it's funny how our human hearts tell us to do things that are crazy, like make the trade. I wonder if you can relate to that, where we think we've got something, but maybe we can get something better, and it's worth the risk. We want more, or we want better and I actually think this reflects on our life in Christ we have it good I mean we have it so good as those who follow Jesus but is there a part of our hearts that thinks but maybe I can do better now we wouldn't say that out loud of course we wouldn't say that out loud but maybe in our hearts we might think that is God kind of ripping me off a little bit? Maybe there are some things that I can do my way so that I can get an even better deal. And when you see me do that, you might cry out, don't do it! But I wonder if you would do the same, if you are tempted as well. That's a problem. So if we're not singing the song how do you solve the problem like Maria? We might be using the term from that movie, well, I don't know if it's from a movie, but, um, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Hosea, we have a problem because we are tempted. We are tempted to second guess what God has for us and think, but maybe I can do better. And the fact is, and you know this because I know you, you get the Bible being taught week after week, we are loved with a lavish love. It's like in Ephesians where you have this image in Ephesians 1 of, it, of what we have in Christ is like a waterfall of lavish love that is poured out over us. And yet, we can be so tempted to have that and add this because we think that will make it even better. And that is what is happening here. The people of God have it good they know that they're the people of God, and yet here they are going elsewhere, flirting with other nations, worshipping other gods, second-guessing his love. So here's a question for us. As we're 
thinking about this and looking at chapter 11. What will it take for the people of God to trust in the Lord and not look elsewhere? What will it look like? What will it take for us to trust in the Lord and not look elsewhere? Keep that in mind as we dive into chapter 11. But of course, before we go into chapter 11, we've got to get our bearings because it's part of uh, the bigger context of, of Hosea. Um, so just to remind you where we are, we're in the northern kingdom of Israel. And believe it or not, on one level, things in the northern kingdom are going pretty well. They're going well politically. Uh, the kings are stable. There's not, they're not churning through the kings. Um, economically, it was going well. They were, they were doing well with, with their nation and the borders. And so on face value... They were, they were doing pretty well. And spiritually, on face value, they were doing pretty well too. They were actually going and sacrificing. They were observing the feasts that the Lord would have for them. They were meeting together. And the priests and the prophets, not Hosea, but the, the other priests, the other prophets and the priests were going, well done. Well done, people. You're doing really well. But, <laughs> just scratch under the surface, get beyond what it looks like, and you would find a people who, as I mentioned a minute ago, are flirting with Assyria, flirting with Egypt. They're, they're looking around. And spiritually, they were in a real mess. The priests were like the blind leading the blind. Chapter 4, don't go there if, you, if you've got your Bibles, just, uh, just listen as I read some of the verses in chapter 4 about the real state of their spiritual life. Verse 6, this is what the Lord says about them, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They had forgotten the law of their God. And the Lord says, and since you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. He goes on to say, like people, like priest. And, you know, it, it would seem that these people are wanting to cover their bases. Yes, they're worshipping the Lord, or so it seemed. But they also, verse 4, it writes, it reads, they inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of, here's that word again, whoredom has led them astray. A spirit of whoredom. How does the Lord respond to this waywardness? In chapter 6, verse 6, this is what the Lord says, and these words might ring a few bells. The Lord says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Does that ring any bells? Where else do we read about that? Jesus says that. I mean, I think, I think I was reading 1 Samuel for my quiet times a while ago, and I'm pretty sure it's in there as well. So it's, it's in various places, but Jesus says uh, in Matthew chapter 8, 9, Matthew chapter 9, he says those words. Seems like Hosea was on his mind as well. And who's he saying it to? Do you remember who he's saying it to? Pharisees. 
And in Matthew chapter 23, they're described like as being blind guides. So you think about Hosea and the priest who's saying, well done people, you're sacrificing, you've got everything sorted. And then we fast forward to the first century, the Pharisees, they're doing exactly that. Going through the motions, their hearts far away. Spiritually, they were in a big mess. Israel is being described in this book like a wife who is running after all, lots of other men. Hosea, we have a problem. But alongside this messy, adulterous relationship with, that Israel had with Yahweh, what we read is that, that whiplash, those whiplash moments of, of God's amazing love that we saw in Hosea 1 to 3, that relentless love, that unrelenting love as a husband to Israel and a loving father to these people who you just want to shake them and say, stop it. And so we have those two realities that, that sit side by side, two truths, judgment of God, the reality of sin, grace, unrelenting love. And that's what we see here in chapter 11. So with that in mind, in terms of what has just, what's been between chapter 3 and chapter 11, Let's have a look at this chapter. We're going to break it into three parts with the question of what will it take for God's people to trust in the Lord and not look elsewhere. And the first part is in verses 1 to 4, which give us a picture of this tender love of the Father. So we've been looking at the relationship between a husband and a wife, and now we have a relationship of a father and a child and that tender love. So have a look at verses 1 to 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So again, we've got this incredible love and this sin that is sitting there side by side, verse by verse. So we have this picture of uh, a father and a son, verse 3, yet it was I, the Lord says, who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. You know, that picture, I'm sure you see it here at church and you see it in, in all sorts of different contexts where a, where a parent is holding up their toddler by their little chubby arms, their little chubby legs, and <laughs> they're walking along and... The toddler's looking so pleased with, with his little himself because he's walking on these chubby little legs. But he's not really walking. He's only being held up by the strong arms of his parent, of his father. That's the picture here. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, the Lord says. But they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of love and, and gentleness and, and kindness. And it moves from this, this picture of a, a father, a parent with a little child to almost a, a, a farming metaphor, which also appears in chapter 10, uh, one of easing the yoke, easing the burden, bending down, coming down to feed them, to care for them. 
protection, nurture, a coming down. I wonder if that's ringing any bells. And when you know that kind of love, that gentle, kind, nurturing love, why would you go anywhere else? And yet, Israel did. That's what we read all through Hosea. And then we read it again here in chapter 11, verses 5 to 7, where we read of the consequences. Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Or verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Again, there's that jarring shift from this beautiful picture of love to the reality and the consequences of turning away from this love. And just as they were enslaved in Egypt, that's part of their history. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll often read of these um, you know, these history lessons that they have. Egypt is always there reminding them of where they've come from and what they have now, that redemption. And here it is here. No, they won't go back to Egypt, but now Assyria is the metaphorical place of slavery. Why? Because they have refused to return to me, the Lord says. My people are bent on turning away, verse 7. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. It sounds like they're calling out to the Lord, uh, but he's not listening. That may be the case, or it could be that it is literally, it literally re reads that they're calling out to the high place, which is usually the place where Baal was, where they worshipped the Baal gods. They refuse to return, refuse to repent, and the consequences are right there. The sword shall rage against their cities. Hosea, we have a problem. There is a right judgment from a holy God upon a sinful people. Are you ready for a little bit of spiritual whiplash again? Because then we come to verses 8 to 11. And when we ask the question, what will it take to trust God? Well, it'll take Again, understanding his love. So verses 8 to 11, listen to these words. These are the words that the Lord cries out for his people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now, these two cities were part of the, the destruction of Sodom and, and Gomorrah. So they're associated with that. How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me, the Lord says. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Why? For I am God, the Lord says, and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When you read through Hosea, the image of lion was usually used in the context of judgment. But here, it seems to me that the image of lion here is more about power and protection. Perhaps a bit like Aslan in Narnia. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. 
Thou shalt come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. These are all the places where they will be taken into exile or land of slavery, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. You know, I think the, the, the emotions behind these words, they're really quite astounding because it's almost like the Lord is wrestling with himself. I mean, here is the God of righteousness, the, the holy, the transcendent one, but he's in their midst, the holy one in their midst, dwelling with the people who are sinful. How can this be? And in the context of so much sin, the Father heart of God says, in effect, but I, I love you. And my compassion, he says, grows warm and tender. Again, how can this be? That How can the holiness of God and, and his, his righteousness dwell with the people who are sinful, who are bent on, on rejecting him, these people who deserve a righteous judgment, I mean, surely one cancels the other out. Certainly in the short term, there was a judgment. The people did go into exile in Assyria. But when we think about the bigger picture, so bigger than Hosea, and when we think in terms of, and this is how I like to think about the Bible, these threads that run through, threads that run through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and run all through the Old Testament and run through to the New Testament. There are threads there. Judgment of God on sin, his grace, his love, his faithfulness, the need for salvation, the need for redemption. When you take these threads that run through Hosea, where does it take us? It takes us to the cross of Christ. When you think about the God who comes down, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who came into this very messy world. And when we look at the cross of Christ, what do we see? We see the judgment of God on Jesus. When we look at the cross of Christ, what do we see? We, saw, we see this amazing grace poured out on us. It sits right there, judgment and grace. John writes, and I think this is part of the quiz today, the um, thing in 1 John 4, this is love, not that we have loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That is, his wrath was turned aside from us and, and onto Jesus. That is the deep love of the Father. That is the very essence of the gospel. Father, heart of God, why would we go anywhere else? But we do, don't we? Perhaps not outwardly, but in our hearts, we might think about what is going to make us happy or satisfied. We all have our idols, might be relationship idols, relationships we seek after that will fill us up somehow because we feel like we need that, success idols, stuff to have idols. I mean, what's it going to take for us to truly rest and know that we have it all in God, in Jesus? I mean, I must admit, you know, for me, it's, it's often 
the worry I have is what's going to happen in the future in terms of financial security. And so I have to ask myself, what's it going to take for me to stop doing my mental calculations of what I need so that I don't need to worry about the future? When really, when I, when I look at who I am in Christ and what he's done for me, has he ever let me down up to this point? No. But there's a part of my heart that says, yeah, but he might sometime down the track. What will it take for me to truly know that I can trust him and not look elsewhere? What will it take for you to do that? Because I suspect that we're all kind of tempted with, with looking elsewhere. I was um, reading, I think it's in Tim Chester's book, he quotes from John Owen. And uh, I thought what he said about, in chapter 11, he writes about, John Owen writes about chapter 11. I thought it was really, it really helped me to think about um, how I can make sure I don't look elsewhere. Listen to this, I don't know if it's in your notes or not, this quote from John Owen, is it? It is good, excellent. Well, I'll read it, but you don't have to sort of write it down or anything. He writes, if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of his nature, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered and embraced by him. So do this, he writes. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful. I love that image. I love that image of setting our hearts on him and, and sitting down for a while and, and drinking from that living water. I love that image. But it's good to think about what that actually looks like in the day-to-day. -day. What, what does it mean to set our thoughts on, on the things of God? What does it mean to sit down and drink from that spring. Well, I think that, I mean, I don't want to use like a classic application of, um, you know, so read your Bible and pray more. But what I do want to say is read your Bible and pray more. But, you know, when it comes to reading your Bible, like let it, like drink it in. Sometimes I think about the Word of God I think in word images and word pictures, and I think sometimes the word of God is like a bucket of water and my heart is like a sponge. And I want to put that sponge and put it into the bucket and dunk it in and then bring it out and have it dripping over with the truths of God's word. I want my heart to be overflowing. That's how I can set my heart on the things of God, set my thoughts on the eternal love of the Father. Or another picture I have, um, around here, pe lots of people have dogs. I love watching people walk their dogs. Now, different dogs walk in different ways. And different owners walk their dogs in different ways. Some have those extendable leads. And so the dog's going, and it's going, getting all tangled up over things over there, and it's all, all over the shop. Some dogs have a shorter lead that's not extendable, but they want to go ahead. And so they, as, they, as they're choking to get ahead. Some dogs like to stop every two steps. So the poor owner's got, you know, pulling back. Oh, my glasses, where are they? Um, so the, the, the owner is um, 
looking along and pulling back all the time because the dog, dog stops. Every once in a while, you'll see a dog and their owner. The dog's right by the owner's side. It's on a short leash. It's walking along, the owner's walking along, the dog's walking along, and they both look really happy. <laughs> I want to be like that. I want to be, I want to stay on a short leash with God. I want to be someone who is um, so, loving so much, walking with Jesus, staying close by his side, drinking in his words so that they spill out of my mind and my heart. I want to stay close. I want to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, staying on a short leash. That way, I won't be tempted to go elsewhere and go to, you know, around there or back there or go too far ahead. Stay close. So what will it mean for you to set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father? What will it mean for you to stay on a short leash? I don't know, maybe it might mean taking your Bible and a notebook, that beautiful notebook that you were given, and going to a cafe. There's lovely cafes around here. I love going to Eat and Chill. I like going to Cornucopia. I love going up to Crow's Nest, to Bean Drinking. There's lots of places. And just sit for a while. Drink it in. Maybe write a few things. Maybe write out your prayers. That's what I love to do. It's a bit of a treat. But it helps me to think about how I can set my heart on the eternal love of the Father. I need that because I forget. It's crazy, isn't it? But it, I forget. Or here's another way of putting it in another quote I've got there. This is from um, John Webster. And he, he writes about un understanding the gospel of grace. And again, you think, surely we can get grace. But I don't think we do get grace sometimes. Here's what he says. It's simply a matter of listening to the gospel often enough and hard enough until it comes to take residence in our hearts and minds and desires. He says, more than anything, we need to ask God to help us steady our lives around the gospel, what the gospel declares to us, that we, the damned, have been delivered from hell, that we've been set free for life and liberty in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We need to steady our lives around the gospel of grace. And when we're tempted to go elsewhere, my prayer is that the Spirit would call out to our hearts, don't do it! And that our hearts would ask the question, where else have we to go? Like the disciples said to Jesus, where else have we to go? So my sisters in Christ, my prayer is that we will allow these truths that often sit here to trickle down into our hearts. And our hearts will be like that sponge that overflows with the realities of God's love and grace. The last verses of Hosea in chapter 14 say this. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let them understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let them know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. My prayer is that we will be women who walk in the ways of the Lord and know in our hearts and our minds that they are right and good. Let me pray for us as we finish up now. 
Our Father, even now, we pray that you would enable us to understand your love for us and that that would trickle into our hearts and overflow into how we live, that we would be women who delight in the gospel and ask the question, where else have we to go? Because we know the words of eternal life that have come from the Lord Jesus and we know his love and grace. We pray, dear Father, that we would daily, even today, trust and obey and not look elsewhere, but know what we have in Jesus is all and so much, so much more than, than we can even imagine. We commit ourselves to you now, Father, in his name.